Amen. It's a good Sunday when you can get the chair of the elders to cry in front of everybody. So that was Jason and myself and Pastor Mike and Josh all conspiring, Adam, on that one, just so you know, to get you to cry. But what a blessing to be the church and to see this is what the church is. We, we mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We celebrate over answered prayer. Uh, it's one of the things we said when we pay, prayed with Pastor Felix is that if God does a mighty miracle, we'll go and, and announce it. We'll, we'll come back and praise your name for it. And so to see God answering prayer, to see God's people uh, celebrating over God's grace, and then now to hear from the word after, after singing his praise. That's what we're all about. We're back in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we've been in Genesis for a while, uh, since the beginning of this year, calendar year, uh, talking about beginnings. Beginnings. And then last week, it was the first week we looked at sin. Uh, the world was perfect. It was in absolute harmony between creator and creation. And creation within itself was in harmony until sin broke into the picture. That's what we looked at last week. And then this week we see that the world is fallen. That's why we call it the fall. Uh, the world is fallen, but it will be fixed. <laughs> it will be fixed. The promise is there that it will be fixed. You know, some things are really, really hard to fix. Once you break them, uh, there's really no going back. There are some things that are really hard to fix. Let's imagine you have a, a priceless vase, like an old Greek you know, vase. And for some reason you're able to you know, see it in a museum and put your hands on it and you drop it. <laughs> and it breaks all over the floor. You've broken something priceless that is really hard to fix. Or let's imagine you get a chance to drive a, a, a Rolls Royce, you know, a classic car, and you're driving along and you somehow crash it into a tree <laughs> and smash the thing up so that it needs to be totaled. You broke something that is really, really hard to fix. Or one more, let's say you get a chance to get your hands on a, on a Gutenberg Bible. I, I've, uh, I've seen a Gutenberg Bible. Everyone know what that is, right? It's the first Bible in, in print. Um, there's only four complete ones in the United States. In fact, we were at the Museum of the Bible. The Museum of the Bible doesn't even own uh, a Gutenberg Bible. That's how rare they are. I'm sure they would love to get their hands on one. Uh, but imagine you get to see a Gutenberg Bible and you spill coffee all over it. <laughs> you, look at the groans on that. The Rolls Royce is no big deal, but the Gutenberg Bible, everyone's upset about that. I like the priority there. The world is broken. It's badly broken. It's really, really hard to fix. Um, now, it's no... no lack of trying. Uh, everybody's trying to fix the world. People have been trying to fix the world since day one, uh, since the, the beginning of the fall. Uh, they use politics to try to fix the world, or education, or social systems, or maybe even war and, and conquering and trying to create a sort of a single kingdom or whatever. There's been no lack of trying to fix this broken world, but it's too broke. In fact, it's so broke that only God can fix it. In fact, he tells us right from the beginning right from when the fall starts, that he will indeed do, do just that. He will fix it. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at 14 through 19. So we're not quite done. We've got one more week, Lord willing, next week uh, before we finish our series from Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Um, but here we, we see God addressing uh, the three culprits. And I think he addresses them in increasing culpability, increasing guilt. He first addresses the serpent. Uh, now the serpent is... is, is Representative of Satan, so in one sense he's the most guilty, but of this particular sin, 
he's the least guilty because he was the tempter. He's not the one that actually committed the sin. Uh, it was Adam and Eve. Then secondly, he addresses Eve, who was deceived by the serpent. And thirdly, Adam, who was in willful disobedience to God. And we see that the world is fallen, but God will fix it. God will fix it. Look with me. Chapter 3, it should be up on the screen. Uh, verses 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The world is fallen. Yet God will fix it. There's an outline in your bulletin. We're going to look at each of the three punishments. Each of the three uh, individuals that God addresses here. Uh, but verses 14 and 15 is the first one. That we are in a spiritual battle, but the outcome is decided. We're in a spiritual battle, but the outcome is decided. Look with me at 14 through 15. Uh, the Lord addresses the serpent. And he addresses the serpent first. As we said, the serpent is a representation of Satan, of the devil, of Lucifer. They're all sort of different names for the same being. I believe that the scripture is pretty clear. Satan was, is an actual being. Uh, he's not just a personification of evil. He actually exists. He's a fallen angel. He somehow takes the form of a serpent or something in the garden here. And God curses him. Cursed are you. Now, interestingly enough, God never curses Adam and Eve. Uh, he, he curses the ground that Adam has to work, which is certainly true. And he curses the Satan, but Adam and Eve, there's hope for them. Uh, there's hope for them. Uh, so he curses Satan, and he says, On your belly you shall crawl. Uh, he will be humbled. Uh, he's brought low. Some might even see here uh, a sort of a statement about him being kicked out of heaven. Forced out of the presence of God on his belly all of his days, eating dust, which is a picture of defeat, of being brought low. He's doomed. Ultimately, his days are numbered. This is a final sort of statement about Satan and where his end will end up being. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Uh, they're never going to like each other. Uh, the woman, who will, as we'll see here, brings forth offspring, will always be at enmity with Satan. Uh, but he also puts enmity between each of their offspring, as it says in the ESV. Uh, literally, it's their seed. I'll put enmity between your seed and between his seed. Now, you might say, well, what is that a reference to? 
Uh, this is what I think, and there are different interpretations here, but I think we're in pretty solid ground here. Uh, he's referring here to their children, their spiritual children. Uh, there will be the people of God. Those are the offspring of Eve. Uh, there will be a line, a direct line, that will go ultimately, obviously, to Christ himself. The offspring of Eve are those who belong to him, Old Testament Israel, Christianity, those who follow Christ are in him. We are in the offspring of Eve. Who is the offspring of Satan? Again, spiritual children of Satan. The world in its rebellion, its treachery against God, its unwillingness to follow his laws and his ways that is in constant opposition to him. Constant opposition between, in the Old Testament clearly, Israel and the world. And then as Christians are grafted into Israel between us and the world, as we throughout all of history. But he does make a very specific prophecy. He, and he here refers to the woman's offspring, uh, will bruise your head. The word bruise there is the Hebrew word shuv, which I don't think bruise is necessarily the best translation. Uh, shuv can mean to beat, to crush, to grind, or to strike. And I think what's going on here is crush. Uh, when you step on the head of a snake, you don't just bruise it. You're crushing his head. You're hoping to kill that snake. He will crush your head. And the serpent, he says, will himself, not his offspring, but he himself. Notice that. It's the woman's offspring, but it's the serpent himself. Now he will strike your heel. He will attack you. And, of course, serpents are poisonous. Describes here an ongoing battle between the devil and God's people, and really ultimately Christ himself. It's all in shadows at, that, at this point. Uh, there's a picture of hope. Uh, this is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelion, uh, the first gospel. It's not super clear, and it's not meant to be super clear. It's only in shadows at this point. When we come to the New Testament, we get a clearer picture of what this is about. But it's prophetic. It's written in poetry as well, so it's hard to sort of grasp. But nevertheless, God already has a plan to redeem and to rescue his people. Notice that, as I mentioned, he's called the seed of the woman. Uh, that's unusual. <laughs> that's not typical language. Uh, just, you know, a simple biology here. Uh, women don't have seed. It doesn't work that way. So usually when you talk of seed, you talk of the seed of the man. That's kind of the Old Testament way to describe it. Uh, why does he address only the seed of the woman? Why doesn't he say the seed of Adam, which would be the typical thing you would do? We learn later, because the birth of Jesus comes by a virgin birth, it comes through Mary. An unusual grammar there has a purpose. The fulfillment comes through another woman, through Mary. But this line goes through all the way to Jesus, from Abraham to the line of Judah, through King David, through the son of David, Jesus himself. It said that he, this offspring, Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, think about that, friends. Jesus defeats Satan permanently, fatally on the cross. Uh, you know, I think of a, when I think of a dangerous snake, I think of the king cobra. And I actually got a chance to be sort of face to face with one. I got a picture when uh, we were doing a, a mission trip. Uh, there was this guy with. Uh, so that's the picture we took. Uh, it was uh, it was a group of four of us, and he was you know doing the whole thing where he's. Uh, charming the snake, and he said, come and, come and take a picture. Of course, he wanted some donation with it, but he said, come next to me to the snake and take a picture. And uh, we thought, you know what? 
the chances are we're not going to get bit by this snake if we come and take a picture. Uh, the chances are that it's either been defanged or he's just really good. But is it worth the risk? <laughs> so he said, you know what? I think we're okay just watching you here. We'll just stay back here and watch what you have to do. Of course, king cobras, that's a small one. They grow up to 18 feet. And they're venomous. Uh, snake bites are extremely venomous. Uh, the only way to really kill a snake, of course, is to cut its head off or stomp on its head. But in doing so, you risk getting bit. And if you are bit, you will be poisoned. What's the effect of a snake bite? Snake bites produce all different symptoms, including localized pain, to say the least, swelling, convulsions, nausea, paralysis, and of course, eventually, death. Yes, this serpent would be defeated, but at a high cost. At what cost? At the cost of the cross, of Jesus' own death in our place. There's a spiritual battle that he describes here. As Christians, friends, we are in a spiritual battle. Uh, it's been said that our three main enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Oh, we see all three of them right here. The world, the offspring, the spiritual offspring of the serpent, that which is in rebellion against God. The flesh, which is our own inner desire to sin. We saw that with Adam and Eve, and now with a fallen nature, we're pulled, we're gravitated towards our own temptations. And the devil, the serpent himself, is going to be in constant enmity against us. But the good news is the outcome is already determined. <laughs> On the cross, Satan's head is crushed. Now he's writhing, he's lashing out, he's mad as all get out, he's want to cause, cause as, much, as many problems as he possibly can, but he's over, he's through. As I said, his days are numbered. In fact, we learn in the New Testament, Romans chapter 16, God says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Clear reference here to Genesis chapter 3. We who are in Christ, in the offspring of the woman, will also stand in victory over Satan with our feet over his head. There's a spiritual battle that we are in, but the outcome is determined. And we need to fight. We pray, lead us not into temptation. We're constantly battling against temptation. We pray, deliver us from the evil one. Uh, so Satan, is that like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? There is a genuine spiritual battle that we are faced with. We're called to persevere, we're called to pray, we're called to read the word and to meditate on his word day and night. We're called to love one another and that's a constant fight and battle to be better at loving. We're called to keep trusting Christ, to be faithful. We're called to repent of sin, to get back up and to keep going. There is a genuine spiritual battle that we are facing, persevering to the end, but the outcome is determined. Satan is fatally wounded and his days are numbered. Jesus says it, or excuse me, the scripture says it right from the very beginning of the Bible. Then we turn to the woman, verse 16, probably the, sh the shortest of the three. He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Uh, he multiplies the, one of the, well, the pain uh, of one of the major callings that God gave human beings, which was what? To be fruitful and multiply. That's going to be a lot Harder for, and so Jason, this is going to be a lot harder harder for Heather than for you. <laughs> it's coming. Uh, childbearing comes with a lot of agony, pain, 
comes with a lot of problems and comes throughout history with a lot of death. That's part of the curse. That's part of the punishment of the fall. But notice the grace right there in that. What was the punishment for eating of the tree? On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But here, clearly, God is saying there will be an opportunity for childbirth. There will be an opportunity for human beings to continue. He holds back his full judgment and allows human beings to continue on and to flourish. Not only that, through a childbirth, (laughs) we just learned from the punishment against Satan, God would bring the Savior into the world. Through the seed of a woman, he'll bring us Christ. Second part of his punishment there is your desire will be for your husband. What's that all about? The word desire is kind of a unique one uh, in the Bible. It only occurs two other times in the Hebrew, uh, this word for desire. Two other times in the entire scripture. One is in the Song of Solomon in which it refers to sexual desire. Um, So that could be what it means and some have taken it that your desire will be for your husband. Doesn't seem to fit. The other occurrence, so the only other one, occurs in Genesis chapter 4. So just a chapter later. So that seems to be more likely what is being meant here. And what does it say there? That sin's desire for Cain is at the door and it wants to rule over you. That desire to overcome and overtake you, to bring you low, to destroy you in a sense. Your desire will be for your husband. There will be a a desire to fight over who is the authority. And yet what is the response of the man? He says he shall rule over you. He will be harsh. He will rule with anger, with a spirit of control rather than of love. It's talking here, of course, about the battle of the sexes. Sometimes we refer to it as. Remember, though, in the garden, what was the picture? They were naked and unashamed. There was love between one another. They were in harmony with each other. Not the same. They were different. That was what made Adam so happy. At last, yes, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, but a, a suitable helper. We're different, but we're in harmony with one another. And Adam was called to responsibly lead and love and wisely care for his wife. And I think, friends, even now, we know that's what's good. Even if you don't believe in the Bible, what's, what's the right attitude between men and women? Well, that we're equal human beings with differences, yes, but called to love and to respect one another. That's not what you see over history, is it? You see instead, through most of history, much of history, that men are superior and they use that dominance to hurt and to harm others. And now you see a, a reverse of that. So what's sometimes called third wave feminism is that women are superior. Men are really the, the problem, the source of all the problems in the world. So it used to be feminism is equality. I think we should agree with that. That's no longer what it means. Now it means men are the problem and they should get out of the picture and let women take over. So there's this battle between the two. And this gets ugly. <laughs> Just think about it from the man's side. It could, issues of control. I need to know everything about you in a marriage. I need to know where you are at all times. Of course, oftentimes it leads to violence. Using a superior strength, usually, not in every marriage, to harm and to overpower. And of course, sex crimes are almost done almost primarily by men against, other, against women or other men. Just this whole, this whole Me Too movement, I think, is in some ways such a good thing. It's bringing to light evil that's been hidden for a long 
time. And from the other side, a gender, this whole idea of this confusion about gender. Uh, what is a male and a female? And, and sexual confusion, where does that come from? And friends, we see that even in the church, this is coming to light. I don't know if you've heard, not only in the Catholic Church, but now in Baptist churches, there's been a, a lot written lately about sexual abuse that has been occurring and sexual assault and inappropriate things happening uh, throughout our country, and it's all coming to light, and praise God. Let, all, let the light shine in, reveal sin, and bring us to repentance where needed. This battle has been played out since Genesis 3. The good news is that God is in the process of restoring us. Through Jesus, God is already fixing the problem. Uh, you don't have to wait to heaven and say, well, it's never going to be right. <laughs> we're growing. It's never going to be perfect, but we're growing even now. To use strength to provide and to protect rather than to control and to do harm. To be inclusive rather than exclusive. To listen with love. To lead well. You know, I think of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus himself, well, what would happen in Jesus' life? Women flocked to his ministry. They flocked to his ministry. Why? Because he was a strong and gentle and loving leader. Children flocked to him. <laughs> What kind of person does it take where kids just want to run up to you and jump on your lap? Because that's what they did with Jesus. They wanted to be with him. And even the disciples said, no, he doesn't have time for you guys. And Jesus said, no, let the little children come to me. It takes someone who is kind, who is strong, who is loving, and who is clearly good. So we see in the life of Jesus. And friends, when I think of marriage in particular, those here who are married, we get to picture Christ in this way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Leads with love, strength, but with love and patience. And women, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Even as we recognize that the Lord has a certain role of authority over our life, but with love. I heard one pastor describe it this way, and I think that was helpful. Uh, rather than focusing on the other, uh, focus on your own life and your own role in a marriage. Um, am I a man, am I a husband worth following? That should be my focus. Not whether my wife follows me or not. Am I a man worth following? And then on the wife's side, am I a woman who makes, who makes it easy for him to love? Not, you know, worry about your role, your picture, your responsibility in that relationship. You don't have to wait until heaven, friends. God is already fixing this battle. It takes a lot of forgiveness. It takes a lot of grace, a lot of healing from hurt, and a lot of wisdom. Friends, we are in a relational battle, and we will be until Christ returns, but love and harmony are achievable. And then we come to Adam, verses 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And we make a joke about that sometimes and say, hey, don't listen to your wife, that was the problem. Actually, in some ways, take it more seriously, because he didn't lead her and protect her from sin and from the serpent, but simply listened as if he didn't have any responsibility over her. That is the problem, and he ate it direct, directly against what God commanded. And what does God do with Adam? He curses the ground. He describes it in three different ways. In pain, your work's going to come through pain. That thorns and thistles, 
will rise from the ground. Thorns and thistles will, are difficult, especially when you're a gardener or a farmer, and they'll cut your hands up. I heard it described before that uh, the thistles are, uh, thorns are actually the, one of the largest carnivorous plants. I don't know if that's true or not, but they catch animals. Animals get caught, they die, they help fertilize the ground. I mean, they're just big carnivorous plants, like a Venus flytrap. By the sweat of your brow, it's going to be a difficult, difficult road. Notice it's centered on eating, <laughs> which eating can be a problem for men. But he says, because you ate what you shouldn't, now it's going to be hard, hard, hard to get food on the table. And then what happens? It ends in death. No longer able to eat from the tree of life, for dust you came from, and to dust you will return. Again, man is made up of the dust of the earth and the breath of God. The breath of God continues, but your bodies will die and return to the dust. Notice what he's saying. He's focused here on Adam with, with work. Work. Uh, work is good, but difficult. Uh, remember, Adam was called to work. He was called to tend the garden right from the start. Uh, work is good. It's part of creation. We said with no sin in the world, with no problems in the world, there's still work. Work itself is part of God's good creation. I think we'll be working for all eternity. Uh, but something has changed about work for Adam. Uh, still, uh, it's still true that it's good, but it's painful. It's dangerous. It's frustrating. It's at times unrewarding. And you work and work with this, un- this frustrating job until you die. <laughs> That's what he's saying, ultimately. I was just looking here that uh, OSHA says that 5,147 workers are killed on the job, were killed on the job in 20, uh, 2017. That's uh, 3.5 per 100,000 workers on average. That's uh, more than 99 a week and more than 14 deaths every single day due to work-related accidents. Uh, the leading cause of, of uh, of, de- of death, worker death, excluding highway collisions, which would make it much higher, um, in the construction industry at least, are falls from a high place, uh, struck by an object, electrocution, or uh, being caught in between two things and being crushed to death. Uh, work is a dangerous thing. Uh, if you include wars, you know, working as a soldier, of course, the death rate goes even higher. And most wars were fought by men over history. Um, in Vietnam, there was one death for every 58 soldiers. Uh, in, in World War I and II, one in every 40. And during the Civil War, one death in every five. That's including both sides, of course. Work becomes difficult, dangerous, and oftentimes leads to death. Friends, all, all jobs are affected by sin. You're not paid well enough for what you do. You're not competent, and you're struggling with being competent at what you're trying to achieve. You just can't keep failing at what you're, what you're trying to do. Or you're without a job. You can't find the right job. You're constantly searching. I've had a lot of jobs over the years, um, and you know, before I became a pastor, all of them have been affected by sin. So I used to work, uh, I did a lot of food industry ones, Dunkin' Donuts, Puppaginos, those type of things. Definitely affected by sin. <laughs> uh, not only from gluttony, which is certainly an issue, uh, but by customers and their rudeness and their willingness to look down on you because you're a servant and sin has certainly affected those areas. Uh, same thing working as a janitor for a while during college. You're seen as lesser. There's a, sin has affected that. I worked as a, in a cemetery for a while doing landscaping. 
obviously affected by sin. There would be no cemetery without sin, but of course thorns and thistles growing up everywhere as well. I worked with uh, those, those who were physically handicapped for a while. Um, again, a result of the fall, seeing the pain and the suffering that comes from that. I worked for a U-Haul and storage company for a while, um, which maybe isn't you know, overwhelmed by sin, but against people's love of possessions, they would pay huge amounts of money to store junk. I mean, they would open up the the locker and there's just junk in there and they're paying hundreds of dollars a month just to say more I want more stuff because I find my identity and how much I have and being a pastor is probably where I see sin the clearest (laughs) because we're dealing with sinners constantly and calling people to repentance and to growth work has affected every I mean sorry sin has affected every area of our lives every area of work but again there's hope with this curse this, this punishment as well death And we see this in Ecclesiastes, by the way, before we move on. Uh, What do we see in Ecclesiastes? This same thing, this connection between work being hard and toilsome and simply ending in death. Ecclesiastes says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. If you ever get a chance to read Ecclesiastes, it'll give you a sense of of, of how life can feel so monotonous and meaningless when it comes to work. Uh, This is Ecclesiastes. Sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. You work hard your whole life and you leave it to someone who has no sense of what it takes to get that and squanders it away. Work is difficult and ultimately ends in death. But death is not the end for those in Christ. Uh, This cycle of birth, work, death. (laughs) The next, birth, work, death. we see it all over the scriptures without Christ, but in Christ where there is hope. And this is a big issue, uh, particularly for men. Again, it's not only men, but this idea of, is this all there is to life? I go to work, I don't love my job, I come home, and I get up and do it all over again. That's why men oftentimes go through a midlife crisis. Um, you know, a sense of, what is the purpose of this? What am I doing in life? I wanted to be a professional baseball player. I never got there. Uh, you know, so a sense of meaninglessness. But God restores our work. How does he do that? In a number of different ways. Let me give you two. One is that work, we are called to work as working for the Lord. It changes everything who your boss is, who your employer is. If you're working for a frustrating uh, employer, recognize your ultimate boss is God. And your work, the work that you're doing is for him. And it has eternal consequences because God is either pleased with what you're doing or not. Change your perspective of who you're working for. And also, that all jobs are a vocation, a calling. God has called you to this work. This is not just what you do on the side, and then ministry is the only thing that matters. (laughs) When you come to church or you're talking about the Bible, that's all that matters. No, what you do, nine to five, five days a week, matters. It's what God has called you to. Work at it. Be excellent at what you do. Do a good job with it and use it as an opportunity to be in this world but not of it as a witness. Death, of course, is, itself is broken by Jesus. He offers us eternal life. And he says what's to come is not the same thing. It's a new heavens and a new earth in which he will restore our work to be satisfying and cooperative, the earth to be cooperative with us. The work we face now is temporary. And not only that, death itself, that we will one day regain access to the tree of life. You see that in the book of Revelation, that there will be a resurrection, not to this dust 
Not to this corruptible material that we are made of now, but something that is incorruptible. This is 1 Corinthians 15. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, our bodies. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. We're then raised to something that does not decay and does not return to the dust. Friends, the world has fallen, but God will fix it. Yes, we are in a spiritual battle, but the victory is set. Christ has defeated the enemy. We are in a relational battle, and we're constantly going to not agree and be in conflict and struggle with one another but we can grow in harmony as we await the day of Christ's return. There's a vocational battle. You will not always love your work. You will not always love your job. But there is hope of a day in which death will be no more and our work will be restored. As I mentioned, God said, the day you eat of this, you will surely die. Uh, Did Adam and Eve die? I mean, what happened? (laughs) I thought that was the punishment. Well, yes and no. Uh, Certainly there was, in a sense, a spiritual death Uh, They fell spiritually, uh, relationally with God. They are no longer in that same relationship with God. And they do die physically, eventually, right? As I said, they're made of the dust of the earth. They return to the dust. They're not able to eat from the tree of life. And we'll look at that later. But God here gives his first, one of his biggest acts of grace. He doesn't bring the judgment he promised. How can God do that? In one sense, you'd say, does that that make God a liar? Does that make God unjust? He said, this is the punishment, and he didn't bring it. Well, God reserved his judgment upon Adam and Eve and upon us and put it on another. He put it on Christ. God doesn't leave us fallen. He doesn't leave us ruined. He delivers us. And he does it through Christ, who died our death, who suffered for our sins, who gave us his righteousness. I want to give, give, end with a quote from Matthew Henry. It sort of summarizes this whole thing. And how admirably the satisfaction of our Lord Jesus by his death and sufferings answered the sentence passed on our first parents. Did travailing pains, that was saw with Eve, come with sin? We read of the travail of Christ's soul. In the pains of death, he was held by our so-called. Did subjection come in with sin? Christ was made under the law. Did the curse come in with sin? Christ was made a curse for us. He died a cursed death. Did thorns come in with sin? He was crowned with thorns for us. Did sweat come in with sin? He sweat for us as it had been great drops of blood. Did sorrow 
come in with sin. He was a man of sorrows. His soul was, in his agony, exceeding sorrowful. Did death come in with sin? He became obedient unto death. Thus is the plaster as wide as the wound. Blessed be God, our, blessed be God for his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has fallen, but God will fix it. Pray with me. Oh Lord Jesus, I think we can see ourselves in the sin of Adam and the sin of Eve. To choose our own personal treachery and rebellion against you because we want it our way. We want what we want. And we recognize, Lord, that as the God of all the earth who is forever just, there is a right and righteous punishment for sin. And you've declared it clearly, Lord, that that punishment is death. And what mercy, Lord, what mercy you have given us that in your Son, the Lord Jesus, he has taken this death for us. And what do we get in return? The righteousness of Christ to be in him for all eternity. Thank you, Father, that the spiritual enemy of all of us has been defeated, that his head is crushed, and though he lashes out and full of anger and madness, his days are numbered, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet as well. Thank you, Lord, that though we are constantly in a relational battle, not just men and women, but all of us with each other, you, Lord, are in the process of restoring us, and we await the day in heaven in which sin will be no more and your people will truly rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn and be one. And Lord, though we are now in a vocational battle and there are those who are struggling with their jobs in this very room, there are those who are going hungry because they can't find a good job or are struggling, Lord, because of maybe some physical ailment that doesn't allow them to work like they once did. And we recognize, Lord, that this vocational battle is real. We know, Lord, that ultimately death is not the end. And you will redeem all that is broken with this world. And you'll do all this in Christ our Savior. So, Lord, I pray that we, who have gathered together here at First Baptist to worship you, would leave with a bigger vision of Christ. A bigger sense of the grace of God. Who not only redeemed us personally from sin, but will redeem all this fallen world in time. And Lord, as we await that day, keep us faithful, keep us persevering, keep our eyes on Jesus, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand together.